All right, so before we just jump straight into this passage, I think that it would benefit us a little bit to kind of orient ourselves and and get our our bearings before we jump in and see what it is that Paul's talking about here in in Macedonia and with Titus. And there's a bunch of stuff here that uh, we would do well to get a little bit of background information on before we get there, looking at the, the timeline of Paul's interactions with the Corinthians church and uh, placing this passage in its proper context before we uh, seek to attack this passage. Uh, perhaps you've been reading through a book before and you've found yourself kind of spacing out and blinking and having to go back and double check and, and see what was going on or watching a movie. I know that uh, sometimes in my house I'll have to pause a movie and uh, turn to my wife and ask, well, Who's that person? What's going on? And just get a little bit of clarification. And it's good to do that in the text, especially since we're not watching an hour-long movie, but we're going through this week by week, uh, piece by piece. So let's look at and consider the, the timeline for where we're at in this event. Remember that when Paul first came into contact with the Corinthians, he did so on his second missionary journey. There are three missionary journeys that Paul went on throughout his life, and at the end he was taken to Rome and uh, presented before Caesar as he appealed to Caesar. But of his three primary missionary journeys, this is toward the second of his missionary journeys that he first encounters Corinth, uh, the city of Corinth, and plants a church of the Corinthians. And you could read about this in Acts 18, verses 1 through 8. We won't go there now. We've done that several times throughout our study in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But at the end of that passage, I think, in Acts 18.8, it tells us that uh, Paul stayed there with them for 18 months. So he built and developed a, a pretty strong relationship with these Corinthian believers. He was there for a while. He knew them well. Well, after leaving the the church at Corinth, after spending 18 months with them, he went to Ephesus, and he spent about three years in Ephesus. And it was while he was there that Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, just checking up on them, seeing how they're doing. And unfortunately, we don't have that letter. That letter has been lost to history, but we know that letter from the first Corinthians that we have in our Bible. So in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So he's referring back to a previous letter, again, one that is now lost. It's actually referred to as the lost letter. Well, now in the second letter that Paul wrote, again, the letter that we have and refer to as 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes to them again in 1 Corinthians 1.11 about his reason for writing that letter to them. Uh, First of all, it seems as if perhaps the Corinthian church had written to, to Paul, asked several questions that he addresses in 1 Corinthians. But he also says here in 1 Corinthians 1.11 that he's been informed concerning them by his, his brethren, so referring to them as those who are saved, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And so if you're at all familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know that there's issues in Corinth, right? And so Paul writes to them to address these issues Again, issues that they seem to have asked questions about, issues that he's heard of through Chloe's people informing him. Uh, that is what the, the letter of 1 Corinthians is all about. Well, after responding with 1 Corinthians, Paul then made a second trip to Corinth while he was living in Ephesus. And we know of this from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is referred to as his painful visit because it didn't go quite as he had planned. So 2 Corinthians 2, 1, he says, 
But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? Also at the end of the letter in chapter 13, verse 2, he refers to this same visit. He says, I have previously said, when absent the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past. So he's referring back to the second time that he was there on this second visit that he made to the Corinthian church to try to help them address some of these issues. And wouldn't you figure that they still had issues even after his visit to them, this uh, sorrowful visit that didn't go quite as Paul had planned. And so after that, Paul then wrote his third letter to the Corinthians. This is a harsh letter or a painful letter, what we often refer to as the severe letter, addressing the man of sin from back in chapter 2. You might remember that we talked about how Paul dealt with this man of sin. And he says back in 2.4, one of the verses that Jerry read for us this morning, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that I would be made not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So this is in reference again to Paul's third letter, this harsh letter. Paul is just being upfront. He's being frank with them, trying to let them know what it is that they need to do to be in right standing with God. And it says that he did this with much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, much sorrow. Paul wrote this letter to them. Well, uh, it seems most likely that Paul had sent this severe letter by the hand of Titus. That Titus was the one who took and delivered this letter to the Corinthian church. And uh, he was definitely tasked with coming back to Paul and bringing a response to Paul. And he plans to meet Paul in Troas so that he can give a report to Paul on how this severe letter was received by the Corinthians. And we see that down in 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. It says, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So we can surmise from those verses that Paul had, again, sent this letter with Titus down to Corinth. It was a, a harsh letter. It was one that was, uh, it was cutting them straight. And he was expecting Titus to meet him in Troas. Well, this verse says that didn't happen. That Paul got to Troas and Titus wasn't there. And he was worried. He was concerned. Uh, he says in verse 13, he had no rest for his spirit, not finding Titus there. And so then he went on to Macedonia, which is a little bit closer to Corinth than Troas was. Uh, Troas is still over in Asia and Macedonia is uh, not. So he was going closer to where he thought Titus might be. And at this point in the letter, in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 2.13, Paul kind of deviates from this whole uh, discussion of meeting up with Titus, of figuring out what's going on with this harsh letter and how the Corinthians are doing. And he kind of jumps into uh, praising God and worshiping God. He begins teaching and reminiscing and encouraging and challenging the, the Corinthians and, and defending his own apostleship. He uh, is kind of just off on his own little rabbit trail, as Paul tends to do. And it's kind of a, a long rabbit trail. Uh, it's not until chapter 7 that he actually picks up this thought again of uh, meeting Titus 
and figuring out, okay, well, what happened once Paul got to Troas and Titus wasn't there and he went on to Macedonia? And that's where we pick up in our text today. Um, so last week, we kind of ended in the middle of verse 4 of chapter 7. But at the midpoint of verse 4, he says, I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. That's kind of a, a summary of the passage that we're going to be looking at today. He says in verse 5, For when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, and fears within. And so again, uh, there's a kind of big break in the text, and he's picking it up here in verse 5, talking about the, the conflicts that he has, talking about this affliction that Paul found himself in. And he actually, he finds himself in quite a bit of affliction throughout all of his ministry. Remember that 2 Corinthians is a rather early letter for Paul, and we still have a, a lot of information about all the affliction that he finds himself in. In fact, he starts off this letter back in chapter 1, verse 8, uh, telling the readers about this affliction. He says, as he writes to the Corinthians, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Those are pretty strong words. Paul despairing of life. Paul not realizing how he can go on. He has this great deal of affliction. Uh, that was what he experienced in, in Asia over in, in Ephesus. He's kind of backtracking and telling the story of all this affliction that he has gone through. And if you uh, think back to Paul's first missionary journey, or rather his uh, second missionary journey, uh, Paul was beaten and imprisoned on this journey as he was in uh, Philippi. You can read about that in Acts 16 and uh, in Acts 16 and 17, you hear about how he went to Thessalonica and how he went to Berea, and he was treated like garbage in those cities. The Jews followed him from one city to another, persecuting him and uh, trying to destroy him, harassing him, coming after Paul nonstop to the point, again, where they're willing to go from one city to another to track this man down. They had no love for him in their hearts at all. Uh, and he references that even in this uh, recollection of his trouble that he had in Macedonia. He says, when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. So not only did he have to enter back into Macedonia for the first time since uh, his second missionary journey when he was driven out of Thessalonica and Berea and, and Philippi, he had all this trouble before in this region of Macedonia. He's now going back there for the first time, and apparently it doesn't go well. It says he has no rest. Not only does he have these other people coming after him who don't want him to be there, these Jews who are trying to drive him out. They don't agree with what he's doing there. But remember that he also has believers there that he's seeking to minister to. He's there for a reason. He's not there defensively to, to ward off these people that don't want him there. He's there to minister amongst believers. He still has his tent-making job that he's seeking to uh, keep up and maintain as he's going there so he can provide for himself and not be a burden to these believers that he's seeking to encourage. Uh, and remember, he's, he's traveling. And traveling is uh, sometimes fun, but uh, that's in the 21st century. He's uh, having to put up with the, the stress of traveling as well. So he had no rest, conflicts without, and fears within, he says. Afflicted on every side, conflicts without, and fears within. Again, referring back to how he opened up the letter in verse 8 of chapter 1, 
he says that he was despairing of his own life. He was depressed, as he puts it. So within, even internally, he had uh, these, these things that he was going through, this general concern for his own self, no doubt, for the people around him, for these other churches that he was involved with, and I think also a sense of uncertainty, not really knowing what to expect, perhaps a, a sense of inadequacy. How is he supposed to do this? What is it that uh, he is to do to overcome these issues that he has in Macedonia, these conflicts without, even amidst these fears within? We have to also remember that he was overseeing an international missions organization, right? Uh, all these different places. He was planting churches. He was traveling uh, in the first century without email, without a car. Uh, and he was pretty much the president of this international missions agency, uh, having to communicate with these different pastors from these different churches, making sure that he's aware of what's going on in these different churches. If we look over in 2 Corinthians 11, he says in verse 27, that he has been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger in Christ, often without food and cold and exposure. And this comes on the, the tail end of a long list of other stuff, outward afflictions primarily that he's going through. But then he wraps up in verse 28 and he says, apart from all such things, which are no small things, these external things, there is the daily pressure on me of, of concern for all of the churches. So, Paul was worried about these different churches that he had established and planted and what these believers, these real people were going through in these churches. We just talked in our devotional about how real ministry is, even in, in our homes. It can be difficult. It's not always easy. And these churches are made up of uh, families, which are made up of individuals. And Paul knows these individuals by name, and he cares for them, and he loves them. And he has this conflict even within being concerned for all these different churches as he's traveling up through Macedonia, as he's trying to figure out where Titus is and, and what's going on, as he has these cities that he's entering into for the first time since being persecuted. He has no lack of conflicts without, of fears within. Again, I mentioned his concern likely for, for Titus. Paul loved Titus. In 2 Corinthians 8.23, he calls Titus a fellow partner and a worker among you. This was his pal, his comrade, his co-worker, uh, who he cared for, and he sent out on this mission. In Titus 1, 4, and 5, he calls him a true child in the common faith. So not only is he a co-worker, but Paul considers him a child that he has sent out and, and put on mission. In that same verse in Titus, he says that he left him in Crete to uh, complete what remains. So he trusted him to go throughout Crete and to establish elders in all these different cities. He was a faithful worker that Paul could trust in. He was a faithful man that Paul loved and cared for. And he had sent him on this mission to Corinth to deliver this harsh letter. And he was supposed to show up in Troas and he's not there. And Paul is uh, uncertain about why he's not there. He's uncertain about how he would be received carrying this harsh letter that wasn't all frilly and, and nice. It and surely had some kind of pleasantries. I would imagine he still referred to them as brothers, but he had some hard things to say to these Corinthians. And he sent this letter in the hands of Titus. Uh, Paul had placed him in a pretty precarious situation, and I'm sure that he felt a certain degree of responsibility for Titus and for having sent him there. And again, now he shows up to Troas, and 
Titus is nowhere to be found. So he's going on to, to Macedonia to see if he might come across Titus there. Well, let's continue reading on uh, about the, the comfort that Paul finds even in the midst of this affliction, in the midst of this trial. In verse 6, uh, well, actually, let's go back to verse 4. So it says, I am filled with comfort at the end of verse 4, and I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. So we have to realize that, that this joy comes about in the midst of this affliction. It doesn't come about just after the affliction, but while he is there, he is comforted. While he is in the midst of the affliction. Verse 6, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So we see that Paul realizes that this comfort indeed comes from God. He attributes it to God. He says that it comes from God. Uh, and it comes through both Titus's coming and the report that Titus brings in verse 7. So in verse 6, we see that Titus comes and brings comfort, brings relief to Paul. Uh, I was thinking this week about those old MasterCard commercials. Maybe they're still around, but I doubt it. Uh, those MasterCard commercials that talk about um, how much you buy something for. A man goes out and buys a bouquet of flowers for, for a girl, and it's $30, right? He buys uh, an engagement ring for a lot more than $30. And then it talks about the, the joy that he sees on her face when he proposes, and she says yes, and says, that's priceless, right? It says, the, the, the tagline for the commercials is that there are some things that money can't buy for everything else. There's MasterCard, right? Uh, Paul didn't have a MasterCard. Uh, he didn't have that, that quick access to just swipe a card and get what he wanted. Totally not the world that Paul lived in, right? But Paul did have Titus. He did have the friendship and the companionship that came from Titus. And to Paul, that was priceless. To be able to see him and to know do your life, right? You're, you're okay. I expected you back in this city. Something went wrong. He couldn't just shoot him a text, uh, but he connected up with, with Titus and he received comfort in his heart through just seeing Titus and knowing that his buddy, his pal was okay. And again, we see that Paul credits God with this comfort, that this comfort came through God. However, God often uses people as uh, the, the means to bring about comfort. He is writing to comfort. Uh, he, God is using the people to comfort other people, to comfort his people. So we see that Titus brings comfort to Paul. And then in the next verse, he says, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. So Titus was comforted by the Corinthians. Titus then went on to comfort Paul by just being there and bringing this report to Paul. And then Paul is writing this letter in, in part to comfort the Corinthians. So yes, God is the one who brings comfort. He uses people as the means, as the, the medium in which to bring about that comfort very often. And this is a great picture of how the, the church is to operate, to comfort one another, to encourage each other. In Romans 1, Paul says that um, I long to you, I long to bring you uh, some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged. He's seeking this mutual encouragement that God offers through the church, through the body coming together to comfort one another. And we see that very clearly in this passage, that the people are the means of comfort. Well, in verse 7, we haven't really read it yet. We see the, the report that 
Titus brings back to, to Peter, to Paul. Peter's not even in this passage, to Paul. Um, so verse 6 says that he's comforted through first seeing Titus, and then 7 says, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So first of all, he was just glad to see his buddy, that he was alive. But then the message that Titus brought back was also encouraging to Paul. So longing, mourning, and zeal. This word for longing, it's the same word that Paul used back in chapter 5 when he says that he longs to receive his, his immortal body, when he longs to receive his heavenly body, to put off the, the mortal and put on immortality. So that's a, a strong word, to long for that. And that's the kind of longing that the Corinthians are reported as having. This is bringing encouragement to Paul, bringing comfort to Paul. And Titus comes back and he reports that they are mourning. This is a little bit new, right? This is good that these Corinthians are mourning, that they have a, an acknowledgement of their sin, of the wrong that they have done. They indeed are having hearts that are open to Paul, right? In our passage last week, we looked, about, we looked at how Paul was pleading with the Corinthians, just open up your hearts to me. Uh, have love for me. I, I love you, love me back, right? And now we see uh, that at least a, a section, a, a subgroup of the Corinthians, they did indeed have a love for Paul. They had uh, mourning in their heart. And they were perhaps not quite so blind as Paul had thought they could be in regard to their sin. And then the third thing that is mentioned as, as Titus saying about the Corinthians is that they, that they had a zeal. They had an enthusiastic concern that is beginning to mirror Paul's own enthusiastic concern, that they were excited, that they were uh, shedding their apathy. The Corinthian churches could be known as a very apathetic church, just kind of going along with the flow, but Titus brings back this great news that, well, maybe they're not quite so apathetic, not quite so blind as we once thought. In fact, they are longing. They have longing in their heart, and they have mourning and a zeal for Paul so that he rejoiced even more. These are good things. This is a good report that Paul brings back, or Titus brings back to Paul concerning this church. Again, this is on the heels of them receiving this harsh letter that Paul was uncertain about how they would receive it. Uh, John MacArthur says that the Corinthians not only provided, uh, responded correctly to Paul, but also to God. They affirmed their loyalty to the apostle and acknowledged their disloyalty to him as a sin against God. That recognition is essential to restoring broken relationships. So they are in a, a right standing with Paul, or they're, they're working toward being in a right standing with Paul, acknowledging what they did wrong, admitting to it, owning up to it. And not only that, but they are uh, approaching a right relationship with God in that same mentality, in this mentality of repentance and sorrow that leads to repentance. And we'll read about this in the, the following verses, about this necessary sorrow, where Paul says that he is happy to see them sad, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but we'll, we'll get into it and see what this is all about. In verse 8, Paul says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while." And so first we have to understand again the source of this sorrow is once again that letter, that harsh letter that Paul had sent by the hands of Titus. And uh, that was this sorrow that he is referring to that is addressing their need for repentance, their need for holiness. 
Paul's calling them out. And it's a little bit harsh. It's a little bit rough. And we see that it is received a lot better than he had perhaps anticipated. So just in four verses here, in verses 8 through 11, Paul uses this word sorrow eight times in four verses. That's quite a, a few times to be using this word. And it's speaking of the necessity of this sorrow. Paul is saying, even though I caused you to sorrow, it was for a purpose. It was necessary that um, communicating to them that, yes, grief can be bad, but our grief should be accompanied by growth. If our grief comes with growth, then we consider it good. So again, in verse 8, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Uh, I think the regret there that he did have for that letter just comes from, again, an uncertainty of how that might be received. I'm sure that you've been there. I've been there where I shot off a text, perhaps uh, what might be considered a a harsh text, calling somebody out or having a conversation with somebody and and pointing out to them uh, a shortcoming that we all have in our Christian walk. This is what Christians do. We, We come together and iron sharpens iron and we are to challenge each other and hold each other accountable. And that can be kind of tense sometimes. And I've, again, often shot out texts where I'm sitting there waiting for a response and the response doesn't come. And I'm wondering, how are they going to receive it? I included the little smiley face emoji. Is that going to help? Is that going to be enough? Um, Paul couldn't include that smiley face. He couldn't just wait for a text. He had to wait for Titus to travel across different countries. And uh, that had to come with all kinds of self-doubt and, and just wondering, did he say the right things? Did he say too much? Did he say too little? Um, wondering how it was received. And this is necessary, right? to confront our our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Even when it's uncomfortable, it's a necessary thing to do. James 1.27 says that pure and undefiled religion is to be unstained from the world. And we as Christians, we as a church, we have a responsibility to make sure that not only ourselves are unstained, that we ourselves are not only pure, that we are not only holy as God is holy, 1 Peter 1.15, but that the church is unstained, that we purge out any evil from amongst our midst, and we confront each other. This is necessary. This is what it means to be the church. In John 15, 1 and 2, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Again, this is good. This is necessary. We might not think of pruning in the moment as something that is good that we desire, but Jesus says this is the way it is to be. Uh, We see Paul mention this regret, this sorrow, as temporary sorrow. He said, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. And this is how uh, restorative uh, correction ought to be received. It ought to be temporary sorrow. In Hebrews 12, he this chapter speaks of uh, how God disciplines his children and speaks of this discipline from God as a good thing, as a mark of the legitimacy of the children, saying that if we don't have any discipline in our life, then we don't have evidence that we are legitimately God's children. This is a mark that we are not illegitimate, but we have indeed been adopted by God. And God will often uh, discipline directly However, he also often disciplines us indirectly or immediately through other people, through other means. 
And we see this in, in Hebrews. So in Hebrews 12.10, it says that he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. That is the purpose for this discipline, to share in the holiness of God. Well, in verse 11, it goes on to say that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So discipline has a fruit, and that fruit is righteousness. Even though in the moment it's not enjoyable. We don't want discipline. We don't ask for discipline. We don't enjoy it. We don't thank people. Uh, well, maybe later on, but like in the moment, we have a tendency to, to not want that discipline. That's a bad thing, right? Um, and he goes on, and the, the author of Hebrews does, in Hebrews twelve fourteen to say that we are to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Once again, we as the church, we have a responsibility and obligation to make sure that we are holy as the Lord is holy, that we are living lives that are holy unto the Lord, that are worthy of the calling that we have received. This is a necessity, uh, even if it comes with a degree of sorrow. This necessity to uh, be holy, this sorrow that leads to repentance, it also can come with difficulty. And we see in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 7 that Paul says, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful. That's not what he's rejoicing over there, uh, innate sorrow. But that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So again, it's, it's not fun to call out our brothers. We shouldn't regret it when we call out our brothers. Um, but it's still necessary. Paul did regret it. Um, again, just wondering perhaps if he had said the right thing, if he had said too much. However, it yielded fruit. Paul was willing to take that step even in the midst of a difficult situation. And we know from Galatians chapter 2, we see another example of how Paul was willing to do that. There he was, Peter is in that text, there Paul was calling out Peter to his face. Peter wasn't associating with the Gentiles, wasn't eating with the Gentiles, and Paul got up in his face and he said, Peter, that's not okay. And in front of everybody, he rebuked him, he called him out. He was willing to take this necessary yet difficult uh, responsibility to call out sin and to name it for what it is. In Galatians 4.11, just a little bit after that, Paul says to the Galatians, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain, communicating the fear that he has for them. He's straightforward, letting them know, I'm, I'm not sure where you're at with the Lord. I'm, I'm scared. In verse 12, he says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. And jumping forward to verse 16, he says, to them, asking them, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? So again, he's, he's shooting them straight. That's how Paul rolls. He's a straight shooter, and he lets them know, I'm concerned for you. I, I'm begging you. You need to be reconciled to the Lord. And then he asks them, am, am I an enemy to you because I pointed this out to you? I'm just trying to help you. Uh, but he fears that he might be received as hostile just for pointing this out, just for calling them out. In Galatians chapter 6, Verses 1 and 2. Uh, Paul goes on, he's 
talking about, again, the necessity to call out our, our brothers. And this is on the heels of the, um, what is it, in, in chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, talking about how those of us who are loving, joyful, uh, gracious, peaceful, these are the fruits of the Spirit. And he says in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if any one of you is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, who are exercising the fruits of the Spirit, you are to restore such a one. And you are to do so in a manner of gentleness and respect, watching out for yourselves that you too will not be tempted. And then he says in verse 2 that we are to bear one another's burdens. And in so doing, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. Again, even if it's difficult, we need to make sure that we are living lives holy as unto the Lord and that those within the church are doing the same. We have the responsibility to uh, make sure that we are all together living united lives holy as unto the Lord. And so, once again, we see that this is not just sorrow for sorrow's sake, but the goal is repentance. The goal is restoration, is to be restorative. Uh, We see this back in 2 Corinthians when uh, Paul says that he was happy that they were restored in repentance. This is to be our goal, just as church discipline is to end with the goal of restoration, of bringing somebody back into the fold of um, not shame, not just mere sorrow, but restoration to the body. It's to be punitive. It's not to be punitive, but it is to be restorative. And Paul even says in this verse that this is the will of God in verse 9, that they were made sorrowful according to the will of God. So he recognizes that God is the one who is at work in it. One of the commentaries that I read said that God was uh, inspiring not only the reading or writing of this letter, of the harsh letter, but also the reading of it, that it was written with love and it was received with love. We can't fall into the trap of thinking that God's desire for our lives is just happiness, right? God isn't a magic genie who just wants us to be happy about everything. Not that he's unconcerned with our happiness, but we can't be so self-centered as to think that uh, our happiness is somehow the, the motivating, driving concern of the omnipotent God of the universe. He has our good in mind, but that doesn't always equate with our happiness necessarily. When, when my kids were little in, in car seats, when they were infants, they absolutely hated being in the car seat. They would just scream and cry. And yet, I didn't take them out and just let them crawl on the floor of the car while I was driving down the freeway. Um, even though I love them, I, I want the best for them, that doesn't mean that them being happy is the, the standard. That's not the goal. So despite what they thought would make them happy, uh, I, that didn't alter my parenting. Their happiness didn't change the way that, that I parented. And it still shouldn't now, right? Even as they're, they're older and they cry about different things uh, and I'm concerned with their happiness, that's not what I use to, to make my decisions. And even as we as earthly fathers know how to give our children good gifts, even when they don't consider them good, uh, how much more our Father in heaven knows how to give us good gifts, even when it's not what we might consider good. And so God's will and the suffering of the Corinthians um, wasn't for their happiness, but rather it was, as we see at the end of verse 9, that they wouldn't suffer loss, that they wouldn't be harmed. It says, you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. 
to, to suffer loss from us. Paul is saying that that would come from the apostles. Well, we just saw back in verse 2 of chapter 7 that Paul was pretty adamant that he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything to harm them. He had pure motives only in dealing with the Corinthians. And yet here he has a perspective that if he were to fail to warn the Corinthians uh, about, I think, particularly the, the, the super apostles, these false apostles, that that harm, though it wouldn't be from him personally, it would still be uh, charged to his account, that he would be responsible for failing to inform them of the danger of these super apostles, which I find quite interesting. All right, well, carrying on in verse 10, we see the result of Paul confronting his brothers in Christ. Even though it's difficult, he realizes it's necessary, and the result of this is to be um, sorrowful. However, there is not just one sorrow. This verse speaks of two different kinds of sorrows and identifies two categories of sorrow. So let's read verse 10 together. He says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces faith. So the two kinds of sorrow that we see here in this passage are those that are according to the will of God and that which is produced or it is according to the world, and it produces death. So that sorrow, which is according to the will of God, produces repentance. We'll get into repentance a little bit more next week, but repentance we should understand and define as a change of mind that results in a change of action. So we have a, a change of mind. Uh, we have a, a different perspective, but it doesn't just stay there. That is worked out and results in a change of action. In this, the text says, this sorrow that produces repentance is without regret, not something that we need to uh, second guess, not something we need to be sorry about, repenting and coming to God in an acknowledgement of our sin, recognizing that what we did was sin. This will never produce a, a regret. Proverbs 21.4, or 24.1, rather, speaks of this. It says, do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. I think as Christians, we can have a tendency to do this. We can look at uh, our, our neighbor or our friend, somebody else who isn't in Christ, and they are uh, doing things that they ought not to be doing, and it seems to be working out okay for them. This text says we shouldn't be envious of them. Uh, we should have a, a repentance, a sorrow that leads to repentance that is without regret. Uh, that same proverb in verse 19 goes on to say, Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. We ought not to be envious of the wicked, for there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Instead, we are to do what the psalmist says in Psalm 32:11. We are to be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. This ought to be the response of our repentance, not to second guess, not to be sorrowful or wish we could be like this other man who didn't repent. We are to rejoice. We are to be filled with joy, realizing that uh, this was a, a good thing that God brought us to repentance. Uh, having the, the mentality that Paul had in Romans 7 when he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? To realize that we have come to that point of repentance is a good thing, and it shouldn't uh, be accompanied with any sort of regret. And we're told that this this sorrow 
that is from the will of God, which produces repentance that is without regret, leads to salvation. This is the mark of a true believer, to be truly sorrowful over sin and to have repented from that sin. Well, again, I mentioned that there are two types of sorrow here. The last one that Paul mentions is a sorrow of the world, which produces death. So there is such a thing as a, a worldly sorrow. We can be sorrowful for something without being repentant for that. It is a sorrow that does not redu- produce repentance. A sorrow that is sorrow, sorry for the fact that we got caught. Sorry for the predicament that we find ourselves in. We're, we're just sad for our own sake that we happen to be in this situation. It's, again, a, an I got caught kind of sorry rather than a, an I want to change type of sorrow. Uh, rather than an I want to honor God type of sorrow, it's a, a I don't appreciate the consequences of what just happened type of sorrow. This is a sorrow that is from the world, a sorrow that is not uh, synonymous with repentance. The Corinthians had, they didn't have this type of sorrow, this type of just defensiveness, this type of playing the victim or trying to justify their sin. They had a true repentance and Paul was rejoicing and, and being comforted in their true repentance, not this uh, pseudo-repentance, not this fake worldly sorrow that doesn't acknowledge God, doesn't acknowledge our responsibility to him or our sin against him. We see a few examples of this throughout Scripture. We see Cain, remember back in the, well, not too far, I imagine, from the Garden of Eden. Uh, he was sorrowful about what he did to Abel, but it wasn't a true repentance. He was sorry that he got caught. Uh, Esau was sorry that he had lost his birthright, but it wasn't a true repentance. Judas was even sorry after he had uh, offered Jesus up to be crucified, and yet that wasn't a true repentant sorrow. And Matthew 27, verse 3, we read about this repentance. It says that then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse, not repentance, but remorse some sorrow, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. And then he went off and he hanged himself. And we're told later in, in other passages that uh, it would have been better for him had he never been born. So we shouldn't expect that that remorse was equivalent with repentance. He is not in heaven. It would have been better for Judas had he never been born. Not better for humanity, not better for Jesus, better for Judas. This was not a sorrow that led to repentance. We should hate disobeying God more than we hate the consequences of our disobedience. We should hate our sin more than we hate the results of our sin. And when we're just sorry on the surface, this isn't, again, equivalent with repentance. This type of sorrow leads to death. This type of sorrow is not sufficient for salvation. When God gives us repentance, he gives us an effective repentance. He gives us a an efficient uh, repentance that changes hearts, that takes that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, that has true uh, results and actually makes us focus on the Lord. We see in 2 Timothy 2.25 that it is, in fact, God who grants repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God gives us the repentance. He opens up our eyes. He changes our hearts. This isn't just a, a surface level remorse saying, I'm sorry that I got caught, but it's a, an acknowledgement of 
where we are in light of God is breaking our spirit and making us realize that we truly need God. This is a repentance that comes from the Lord. Acts 11.18, we see the same thing, that to the Gentiles also, God granted repentance that leads to life. There are two types of sorrow. One, which is true sorrow, which leads to repentance, which leads to life. And then a repentance is just sorry that you got caught. A repentant or a sorrow that is not repentance, that is without remorse. And that ultimately leads to death. Godly repentance is repentance that does not need to be repented of. We don't need to regret over this godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It is without regret. And though it can often be awkward and uncomfortable and result in pain and tears, uh, it leads to comfort and it should in fact be the cause of rejoicing. These Corinthians seem to have truly repented and Titus was bringing this message back to Paul. This caused Paul to rejoice. This gave Paul great comfort, great joy, and we can have the same comfort, the same joy in our lives by truly being sorrow for our sin and truly repenting with the repentance that comes from the Lord. Uh, We should do as uh, Paul instructed Timothy to do, to pray for this repentance that God grants that leads to life, that leads to salvation. Let's pray. God, again, I do want to pray that you would, you would convict us, you would prick our hearts, and that you would help us to see the, the grotesque reality of our sin, the ugliness of our sin, our need for a Savior, and that you would indeed grant the, the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance, that you would open up our eyes, you would give us a new heart if that's indeed what we need, and that you would give us a, a burden for the lost so we could go out and we could be praying the same thing for the lost. We could be uh, interacting with them in a way that would draw them to you, that would make them aware of their need for you. God, I thank you for this church body and I thank you for the unity that we have here. I pray that we would be marked by that. We would be marked by our love for you and that we would have a, a heart that is repentant even after that initial repentance, that we would be in right relationship with you, that we would be unified by the blood that you have shed to, to buy us, to purchase us back from the slave market of sin to make us your own. Amen.